بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على رسوله الكريم نبينا محمد وعلى آله وأصحابه أجمعين أما بعد So continuing with our study of the 40 hadith of Imam al-Nawi Right now we're studying hadith number 29 and we have reached the third part of Sheikh Abdul Muhsin Abbas' explanation. Let's have a quick recap of what we covered last session. Paradise is a blessing. Paradise is a favor from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Paradise is something that a person cannot earn. You can't earn it in the sense that you can't work for paradise to such an extent that your deeds become equivalent to the value of entering paradise because entering to paradise its value is extremely high and it's impossible for the human being to be able to accumulate such deeds that equate to the same value as the entry of paradise a person does de uh, does good deeds to show to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that he is sincere however the ultimate reason why a person ends up entering into paradise is is what? Sorry? Rahmah, the mercy of Allah. Entry into paradise, it's by the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. There's something else as well that's connected to this that is from the mercy of Allah. Okay? Entry into paradise is by the mercy of Allah. Jalla wa az. Your actions are not equivalent to the value of paradise your actions are only a cause of you entering into paradise you did good deeds so number one you did the best deed which is to worship nobody except Allah you believed in the messenger you followed him you did the best of good deeds Tawheed and Mutaba'ah and in addition to that you did other righteous, uh, righteous actions prayer Zakah, Siyam, Hajj and so on and so forth. So as a result of that, they became a cause of you entering into paradise. But they were not an iwad, a substitution, a replacement for paradise. So entering into paradise by the mercy of Allah. Something else that we mentioned is also by the mercy of Allah. What else is connected to this? Ahmed. Yet you ask Allah tawfiq and mercy for entering into paradise. Yes, you ask for that, but something else is also by the mercy of Allah. The reward, which is paradise, is by the mercy of Allah Anjam. Being guided to do the actions in the first place is by the mercy of Allah. The reward, which is paradise, is by the mercy of Allah. Anjam. Anjam is preceded you. Ah, go on then. Staying away from hellfire, very good. Ahsan, barakallahu feek. So the reward which is paradise, that is by the mercy of Allah. And the cause which inevitably resulted in you getting the reward, the cause which inevitably resulted in you getting paradise, the cause which are your good deeds, which led you to paradise, those good deeds, they likewise are by, are by the mercy of Allah. You can't perform salah. You can't give zakah. You can't perform Hajj. You can't even become a Muslim 
except by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala putting you in the right place at the right time, putting you in the right state of mind, giving you all of those means and those faculties that are necessary to perform those righteous deeds. Therefore, the reward is from the mercy of Allah and the sabab, the cause which led to getting the mercy of Allah, yani paradise, that is likewise from the mercy of Allah. Paradise is from the mercy of Allah and you being able to do good deeds is likewise from the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Tamam. And then after that, the messenger alayhi salatu wasalam, he said that you, O Mu'ad, you've asked a big thing, a great thing, a mighty thing, a tremendous thing, indicating that the way to paradise, it is something that is big, it is something that is tremendous, and therefore it requires effort. You can't get paradise just by sitting down, relaxing, and not working for it. It requires effort. But if it's the case that you're sincere, if it's the case that you're sincere in wanting to get paradise, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He'll open up the doorways for you. He'll make that path easy for you. The third part was now the Prophet alayhi salatu wasalam outlines for Mu'adh ibn Jabal the path that will take him to Jannah and save him from the fire of hell. So what did the Prophet ﷺ mention? How do you get to paradise and how do you get saved from the fire of hell? Ridwan, Ammar. Five pillars of Islam. Yani the Messenger ﷺ is highlighting the fact that the first and foremost method of getting into paradise and getting saved from the fire of hell is by fulfilling the obligations, doing the mandatory things, those things that Allah has told you you have to do. And so he mentioned, those that he mentioned from those mandatory actions were the five pillars of Islam. And he mentioned them in a well-known order. What's so significant about this order? What's so significant about the order that the five pillars of Islam are mentioned? The first pillar is not Hajj. The first pillar is not fasting. The first pillar is a Shahada. The second pillar isn't Hajj. The second pillar isn't fasting. The second pillar is Salah. The third pillar is Zakah. The fourth pillar is fasting. The fifth pillar is Hajj. What's so significant about this order? What's so significant about this order? Good uh, one. Yeah, that's one thing that's connected to it. The amount of times you do that particular deed. Something more, Sheikh Ammar. Yeah, they're in order of importance. So the first pillar of Islam, which is the, the Shahada, that's the most important thing. That's the thing that enters you into Islam. Without the Shahada, there is no Islam at all. And therefore, that is the most important thing. And thus, it is the first pillar. The second pillar is Salah. Why is Salah the second pillar of Islam? Why is it so important in comparison to the rest? Sheikh Haytham. Accept the Tawheed. Yeah, so in order for a person to pray Salah, he has to accept Tawheed. That's why the Shahada is the most important. But my question was, why is the second pillar, Salah. 
Why is the second pillar the prayer? Ayub. First thing that you'll be asked about on the Day of Judgment? Huh. Fantastic. That means you're paying attention. It's the strongest bond between you and your Lord the Most High. There is no other bond that is stronger than the bond that, is, uh, that comes about as a result of you praying Salah. Fantastic. It's the most frequent act of worship in comparison to the other three pillars of Islam. It's something that you perform five times a day. Why is the third pillar now? Zakah. Why is it not Hajj? Why is it not fasting in Ramadan? Umar? No. Bilal? Fantastic. So the third pillar of Islam is Zakah, the annual poor due. Why? Because not only are you helping yourself, but you're helping other people as well. And how many times does a person do it? Just once in his life? Yeah, on an annual basis, once a year. Similar to fasting. Fasting is also in Ramadan on an annual basis, once a year. Zakat is once a year. Fasting is once a year. So why is it the case that fasting and zakah aren't joint in being the third pillar of Islam? Why is zakah the third pillar and siyam fasting in Ramadan the fourth pillar? Uh, Bilal. Fantastic. Because fasting, the only person that's benefiting from the performance of that act of worship is yourself. However, as far as giving zakah is concerned, giving the poor due is concerned, then you benefit from it spiritually. It purifies you. And others benefit from it in terms of receiving uh, uh, whatever you give in zakah. The fifth pillar is Hajj. Why is Hajj the fifth pillar and not the second pillar? Why is Hajj the fifth pillar and not the second pillar? Sheikh Ali. It's only once in your whole life. It's only once in your whole life. As opposed to fasting, which is once a year, zakah once a year, praying five times a day, five times a day, but Hajj is only once a year. Hmm. Fantastic ta'aliq there from Sheikh Ridwan. If it is the case that you do not have the wealth to perform hajj, then hajj is not wajib upon you. If it is the case that you physically can't perform hajj, hajj is not wajib upon you. If it is the case that the female does not have a mahram to take her for hajj, hajj is not wajib upon her. So a person basically needs to have the ability to perform hajj. Tamam. Part number four is concerning the statement of the Messenger alayhi salatu wasalam when he said, khair. He said to Mu'adh, Shall I not direct you to the doors of good, to the avenues of goodness, to the avenues of righteousness, of goodness? Then the Prophet, he continues, As-sawmu jannah was-sadaqatu tudfi'u al-khati'ah the Prophet, he said, fasting is a shield. 
and charity extinguishes the evil deed just like water extinguishes fire. He then continues, وَصَلَاةُ الرَّجُلِ فِي جَوْفِ اللَّيْلِ ثُمَّ تَلَى تَتَجَافَ جُنُوبُهُمْ عَنِ الْمَضَاجِعِ حَتَّى بَلَغَ يَعْمَلُونَ And then the Prophet, he said, and the prayer of a man in the depths of the night. And then he recited the verse, their sides forsake their beds until the end of the verse. So now, when the Prophet ﷺ, when he has explained to us the fara'ib, the wajibat, the mandatory deeds, those deeds that are, that are a cause of entry into paradise and, and being saved from the fire of hell. When the Prophet ﷺ has told us and informed us about those deeds that shall enter us enter, enter into paradise, and save us from the fire of hell. Now the Prophet ﷺ goes on to mention to us something from the nawafil, something from the supererogatory deeds, which will then increase a person's iman, which will then increase a person's reward, which will expiate his sins. So the Prophet ﷺ has told us now how to get into paradise and he's told us how not to get into the fire of hell how to be saved from entering into the fire of hell but we all know that paradise even once you've entered in there paradise is of levels paradise is of variant degrees and so the prophet did not just stop there by providing information as far as entry into paradise is concerned and that's it no he provided more information he provided information which would result in us getting higher and higher levels of paradise and so he mentioned three deeds the fact that he mentioned these three deeds shows the superiority of these three deeds they are very very noble deeds there are many nawafil many supererogatory deeds that a person can do supererogatory optional deeds that a person can do via which he can increase his levels in paradise but he mentioned these three because of how superior they are so the first one that he mentioned was what was the first one that he mentioned fasting is a shield fasting is a shield for you in this life and fasting is a shield for you in the afterlife it's a shield for you in this life because it protects you from falling into sin. As the Messenger والسلام, he said, Ya ma'ashir al-shabaab, man istata'a minkum al-ba'ah, falyatazawwaj, fa'innahu ahsan al-faraj wa aghadl al-basar, wa man lam yastati' fa'alayhi bil-sawm, fa'innahu lahu wija'a. The hadith in Bukhari wa Muslim. The Prophet, he said, O young men, O young men, Whoever is able among you, then let him get married. Why? Because it is something that is ahsan lil-farj. It is something that safeguards the private parts. And it is something that results in the eyesight, the gaze being lowered. And then he said, whoever is not able to fast, then uh, whoever is not able to do so, then upon him is to fast. 
for indeed that will be a shield. Fasting in this life is a shield. How is it a shield? It results in a person being protected from falling into those haram matters. A person, for example, if he's not married and he doesn't have a place where he can uh, fulfill that desire of his, then he's prone to falling into sin. He's at risk of falling into sin. However, this fasting will be a protection for him in the dunya. Why? Because it will, it will result in him lowering his gaze and it will result therefore in him protecting his private parts. As far as the afterlife is concerned, then the, fire, then the fasting is a protection from the fire of hell. As the Messenger alayhi salatu wasalam, he said, Man saama yawm fi sabilillah ba'ada allahu wajhahu anil nar sab'ina kharifa. The hadith in Bukhari. Whoever fasts a single day in the path of Allah for the sake of Allah, then Allah shall cause that person's face to be distanted, distanced from the fire of hell by 70 autumns, meaning 70 years. So fasting has its benefits here while you're alive in this world, and likewise it has its fruits and its benefits in the afterlife. The benefits in this world is that it is a shield from sinning, and the benefits and the fruits of it in the afterlife is that it saves you from the fire of hell. It distances you from the fire of hell. What was the second deed that the Prophet ﷺ mentioned? First one was fasting. Second one was what? In this hadith. Charity. He said, Charity extinguishes the evil deed, just as water extinguishes the fire. So just like when you get water, Shaykh Abdul Muhsin Abad, he says, just like when you get water, if, you get, if there's fire there, and you get a sufficient amount of water, pour the water over that fire, what's going to happen? It will extinguish the flames. If you have a small amount of fire, you get a bucket of water, it will extinguish the flames. You have a larger amount of fire, get a massive amount of water, it will extinguish the flames. If a building is on fire, sooner or, sooner or later, by the water, the hose pipes that the firemen bring, sooner or later, it will extinguish those flames. In a similar fashion, sadaqah, charity, and we have covered before what charity is, the asal of charity is wealth, but it is much more broad than that as well. Sadaqah, charity, is something that extinguishes, wipes away the evil deed. Meaning, it wipes away the, major, uh, the minor sins. It wipes away the minor sins. As for the major sins, then tawbah needs to be made for those particular sins. Third part, or the third supererogatory deed that the Prophet ﷺ encouraged. What was it? First one was fasting. Second one was sadaqah, charity. Third one was anybody from... Anybody else that doesn't usually answer or would like to have a go? Yahya. Fantastic. Praying in the last third of the night. And likewise, the Messenger, alayhi salatu wasalam, he has mentioned concerning uh, praying in the last third of the night that it is the best prayer that a person can perform. 
after his obligatory prayers. So after the five daily prayers, the best prayer that you can perform is the salah in the middle of the night, meaning tahajjud, qiyamul layl, the prayer in the, in the middle of the night. That is the best prayer that a person can perform. And then the Prophet والسلام, when he mentioned this, he recited an ayah. تَتَجَافَى جُنُوبُهُمْ عَنِ الْمَضَاجِعِ يَدْعُونَ رَبَّهُمْ رَبَّهُمْ خَوْفًا وَطَمَعًا وَمِمَّا رَزَقْنَاهُمْ يُنْفِقُونَ Their sides, the righteous ones, their sides forsake their beds. تَتَجَافَى Wake up and want to get out of bed. Wake up and in the middle of the night and want to get out of bed as though sleep is something that they want to get rid of. Just take my nasib, take my portion of what I need from sleep, and that's it. Get out of bed. They forsake their beds. Why? Because they want to stand up at night and pray to, the Lord, pray to their Lord. They pray to their Lord. They call upon their Lord out of fear and out of hope, and they spend from that which we have provided them with. Then Allah Jalla He said in this ayah, فَلَا تَعْلَمُ نَفْسٌ مَا أُخْفِيَ لَهُمْ مِنْ قُرَّةِ أَعْيُنْ جَزَاءً بِمَا كَانُوا يَعْمَلُونَ No soul knows what has been concealed for them from the delights of the eye as a reward for that which they used to do. Meaning, no soul knows the delights of paradise that are hidden for us, that are concealed for us, that are lying in wait for the believers to go and taste and experience as a reward for what you used to do. So if you notice, the first ayah mentioned, Qiyamul Layl. The first ayah mentioned, Tahajjud. The first ayah mentioned, standing at night in prayer. And then after that, the rewards, those concealed rewards of paradise were mentioned. Why is this significant? If you look, at the statement here of the Prophet ﷺ, not only did he mention three righteous deeds from the voluntary deeds, from the optional deeds, not only did he mention charity and fasting and standing in prayer at night, but alongside that, he ﷺ mentioned those things that will push you and encourage you to do those three, day, three things. He mentioned fasting, and he mentioned something that will encourage you to fast. What did he say that will encourage you to fast? He said fasting is a shield. When a person realizes hellfire is true, hellfire is real, hellfire is going to burn people. If I fast, it's going to shield me from the fire of hell. Sins are something that are going to destroy me. If I fast, the fasting will protect me from sinning. This is now a fantastic incentive for a person to fast. So the Prophet ﷺ, he wasn't being stingy with his knowledge, but he was being generous with his knowledge. Not only did he tell us a virtuous deed, meaning fasting, but he also told us something that will push us, encourage us to fast. Not only did he tell us that charity, is a virtuous deed which will increase our levels in paradise but he also mentioned something that will push us encourage us towards fasting what is the thing that the prophet mentioned that will push us and encourage us to fast 
it extinguishes our sins. So a person knows that he's got sins on his head. How do I get rid of those sins? I could die any minute. I want to get rid of those sins so that I'm not risking and jeopardizing my afterlife. Ah, person gives charity. If I give charity, it will extinguish my sins just like water extinguishes the fire. Why did the Prophet tell you that? To push you, to propel you, to encourage you to give in charity. And then the Prophet not only does he tell you that getting up in the middle of the night while the rest of the city is asleep, praying to your Lord is a good thing in the middle of the night. Not only did the Prophet say that, but likewise he recited the ayah, that ayah that contains within it information that will push you, encourage you, propel you in getting up in the middle of the night and worshipping your Lord. That ayah within which there is a mentioning of a reward, a reward which no eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no heart can ever imagine. Likewise, what we learn from the statement of the Messenger والسلام, when he said to Mu'adh, أَلَا أَدُلُّكَ عَلَىٰ أَبْوَابِ الْخَيْرِ الْكَلَامِ What we learn from the Prophet والسلام, when he said, Shall I not tell you about the doors of goodness? Shall I not tell you about the pathways, the avenues towards goodness? What we learn from this is that this particular statement, the Prophet والسلام, he said it as an introduction, as a preface, uh, as, a, as a preface, leading to leading to those to those important statements that he's about to mention. He's about to mention three important deeds, but he wants Mu'adh ibn Jabal's attention to be alert. He wants his attention to be awake and alert so that his mind is prepared and ready to receive this important information so that he can retain it properly. Sometimes you hear someone say something, but your mind isn't fully ready. Your mind isn't fully ready, it's half asleep. So the information that he may give you, even though the information might be important, because your mind is half asleep, you can't remember the information properly. So the Prophet ﷺ, not only does he provide vital information to this companion, but in addition to that, he makes an introduction, a preface to the information that he's about to give in order to ensure that the listener is paying attention his ears are paying attention, his heart is ready, his mind is ready to receive and retain the information that he's about to receive. When someone says to you, shall I not tell you about the doors of good and your mind is much more ready and alert than if he was to go straight into the subject. So that is the benefit that Shaykh Abdul Muslim Abad he mentions concerning this particular statement of the Messenger Alayhi Salatu Part number five, part number five of Sheikh Abdul Muhsin's explanation is concerning the statement of the Prophet when he said أَلَا أُخْبِرُكَ بِرَأْسِ الْأَمْرِ وَعَمُودِهِ وَذِرْوَةْ سَنَامِهِ Shall I not tell you concerning the head of the affair the head of the religion and its support and the summit the peak of its mount 
He says to Mu'adh, shall I not tell you about the head of the religion, the support of the religion, and the peak of the religion? So then Mu'adh, he said, Bala ya Rasulullah, indeed, O Messenger of Allah. Meaning, tell me. So the Messenger said, Ra'sul amri al-Islam, wa'amuduhu al-salah, wa'dhirwat sanamihi al-jihad. The head of the affair, the head of the religion, يعني, is Islam. And its support is Salah. And the peak of its mount is Jihad. And we'll explain this. So the first statement that the Messenger said was that the head of the religion is Islam. Meaning a Tawheed. A Tawheed, that is the head of the religion. Without the head being on a purse, being on a body, without the head being on the body, then there is no life to the body at all. It's dead. It's lifeless. Without Tawheed being the foundation of a person's religion, if there is no Tawheed, then there is no religion. Why? Because Islam, by its definition, is Al-Istislam Lillah. It is to submit to Allah, to surrender to Allah. Al-Istislam lillah bit-tawheed. To surrender to Allah, to submit to Allah, to give up to Allah by directing all of your worship solely to Him. Surrendering and submitting to anything or anyone from creation is humiliating. However, surrendering and submitting to the Creator is liberating. You free your soul from the shackles of worshipping and glorifying and revering others to being liberated by worshipping your Creator, honouring your Creator, submitting and surrendering to your Creator. So that is the head of the deen. That is the head of the religion. Without it, there is no deen. Secondly, the Messenger ﷺ explained that the support of the deen, the support of the deen is the salah. The deen, it rests upon the salah. That is its support. And therefore, if the support isn't there, the deen collapses. Just like if you have a support that is holding up a tent. You got a tent or a gazebo. If you get that pole, if you get that support and you yank it out, What's going to happen to the tent? It's going to collapse. The same thing applies for the Salah. If the Salah is deficient, then you're going to find the religion being proportionately deficient. If the Salah is absent, then the religion is going to be absent. Based upon that, the scholars, the vast majority of the scholars they have mentioned, that the one who abandons the Salah, he is not a Muslim. The one who abandons the Salah, based upon the opinion of Imam Malik, based upon the opinion of Imam Shafi'i, based upon the opinion of Imam Ahmad, the one who abandons the Salah, he is not a Muslim. Why? Because the Messenger, alayhi salatu wasalam, he said, one evidence from it, is that al-ahda al-ladhi kafar. The covenant between us and them, meaning the disbelievers, is the Salah. So whoever abandons it has disbelieved. 
based upon that the ulama they have mentioned many of the ulama they have mentioned that the one who abandons the salah he is a he's not a muslim and therefore the one that identifies himself as a muslim identifies himself as a person who fears allah believes in hellfire believes in paradise believes that there is a punishment believes in that the fact that there is a reward then that statement of the prophet should scare him and therefore it should likewise encourage him in being observant concerning his prayers the scholars they, the scholars they also mention that if a person wants to know his his nasib and his hub of the deen he wants to know his portion of the deen how much of the deen does he have how much islam do you have then just look at your salah if you want to know your nasib of the deen your hub of the deen the portion that you have of the deen how much islam you have how much of a muslim you are then just look at the salah look at the salah and depending upon how observant you are of the salah then that is how much of the of uh, that is the nasib of the deen that you have that is the portion of the deen that you have so the one that is very very observant of his salawat such that he supplements it with a super superrogatory prayer he also prays at night he's someone that prays salat uh, duha uh, uh, and so on and so forth and that there is a reflection of the portion of Islam that he has the more observant the Muslim is of his salah the greater portion of Islam he has the more negligent the Muslim is concerning his salah and the less of a portion of Islam he has third matter that the messenger mentioned was الجهاد, the peak of its mount the peak of the mount of your deen the peak of the mount of your religion the peak of the mount of Islam is al-jihad the sanam which is the hump of a camel is called sanam because it is the highest part it is the highest part of the camel if you if you ever sat on a camel before if you ever sat on a camel you realize that the hump of the camel is the highest part of the camel so the Messenger والسلام, described jihad as being the peak of the hump, meaning it is the pinnacle of Islam. Why? Because in jihad there is izzah for Islam, there is honor for Islam, there is respect for Islam. By way of jihad, Islam it becomes manifest. However, one very very important point to make and it's obvious how important it is especially because of what happened on Friday where a person who ascribes himself to Islam he ended up killing a man and a woman in London uh, and attacking other people at London Bridge what he did there and what people of his ilk and his mentality and his warped ideology do is not jihad at all it is not a representation of jihad at all because jihad number one jihad 
It is a term that refers to struggle, striving, putting in effort, toiling and laboring and working hard, struggling. That is what jihad means. And it is of different levels. And from them, the first of them, as Sheikh Zaid ibn Hajj al-Madkhari and other scholars have mentioned, the first level of jihad is jihad al-nafs, jihad of the soul. The one who has not even accomplished jihad al-nafs, jihad of the soul, he in no way, shape or form is capable of performing jihad al-a'da, jihad against the enemies, jihad against others. He in no way, shape or form is capable of doing so. Jihad al-nafs, it consists of, number one, striving and struggling and working hard in attaining knowledge. That's the first level of jihad al-nafs. Second level, striving, working hard, putting effort, putting your sweat and tears and blood into acting upon your knowledge. Third level of jihad, jihad al-nafs, is striving to disseminate that knowledge, to share that knowledge with others. Number four, is that a person is patient now. Patient with the harm that he's going to face as a result of acquiring knowledge, acting upon knowledge, and calling others to that knowledge. You're going to be tested. If you perform jihad and nafs as far as level one and level two and level three are concerned, attaining knowledge, acting upon it, preaching to it, if you do that, for a fact you're going to be tested. Because the prophets before you, they were tested and that was their occupation. So you're going to be tested. You have to be patient with that. You have to bear the harmful consequences and repercussions of that. Once a person has attained that, then as Sheikh Zaid ibn Hadi al-Madkhali rahimahullah ta'ala, he said, then a person, then he is capable of performing jihad against others, striving against others. Struggling against others. From them, and then Sheikh Zaid ibn Hadi al-Madkhali, he mentions different categories of people towards whom jihad can be performed. Towards whom struggle can be performed. So from them are those against whom there is a physical struggle. A physical jihad. The jihad of the battlefield. That, however... In no way, shape or form means that it's allowed for a Muslim to go and kill an innocent civilian. That jihad is conventional war. Conventional war that takes place between every single country in the world. So if there is a Muslim country, its borders are being attacked, invaded, or its borders are being threatened then that government of that Muslim country obviously has the right to defend its borders. That defense of those borders, and likewise, any strikes that they carry out because of any threat that they fear, is considered jihad. But there are rules and regulations concerning that jihad. From those rules is that you can't kill women, children. You can't even uh, uh, cut down the trees of your enemy. You can't even harm the monk that's praying in the monastery. If the purpose of jihad 
was to eradicate non-Islamic religions. If the purpose behind jihad was to eradicate any other religion besides Islam, then wouldn't you think that the monk and the priest would be the first target? Yet the Prophet ﷺ categorically said, you can't harm the monks in their monasteries. You can't harm the priests. You can't harm the rabbis in their, in their places of worship. Who are the people that the Prophet ﷺ said are to be fought against in a conventional war situation? He said, fight those that are fighting you. How just and how fair that is. That you can't kill innocent people. You can't kill civilians. You can't even harm the crops of the enemy. Those that are fighting you on the battlefield. That, are, that, that is the rules and regulations that Islam has outlined concerning warfare. And therefore, if a Muslim country that has an army is threatened, invaded, then it has been given the right, divine right from the Creator to protect itself and to defend its borders. And no uh, sane human being, whether Muslim or non-Muslim, would deny that that is a right that he has. That does, not now, that does not now mean that a person can go kill innocent people, as we've explained already. So therefore, what this terrorist has done uh, on Friday, and like many other terrorists have done uh, in the past, in the recent years within Europe, and more so in the Muslim lands, that, as we know, is not a representation of the teachings of Islam concerning jihad. ISIS... The Muslim countries that have been fighting ISIS, that fight that those Muslim countries have been engaged in is jihad. Fighting against those that identify themselves as Muslims. Saudi Arabia, UAE, those other countries that were fighting against ISIS, that fight of theirs was considered, it was considered jihad. And therefore, a person should not misunderstand by way of in hearing the term jihad, that it is a license for a person to engage in those acts that the so-called jihadis do, like Al-Qaeda and ISIS and, and their like. So that is one type of jihad, the physical jihad. Likewise, the jihad against the munafiqeen, the hypocrites. The hypocrites, jihad against them, concerning their i'tiqad and their beliefs, those beliefs that expel a person from Islam. Likewise, Sheikh Zaid, he mentioned another category. Ahlul Bid'ah, making jihad against them. How does a commoner make jihad against Ahlul Bid'ah? How do non-governmental institutions and bodies make jihad against people of innovation, make jihad against the hypocrites? How do they do it? Obviously not with a sword. The way that a common person or a student of knowledge or a scholar, how he makes jihad against Ahlul Bid'ah, how he makes jihad against the people of innovation is by refuting their false beliefs, refuting their misinterpretations of the religion. Not physically, however. That is something that is for the rulers. Number four, or another category that Sheikh Zayd ibn Hadi al-Madkhali he mentioned, is jihad against the people of sin. Those that commit major sin and they commit it openly, in public. In front of everybody he's drinking. In front of everybody he 
uh, takes drugs and what have you. In front of everybody knows he's a thief. And so on and so forth. He's disobedient to his parents out and in front of the eyes of others. He commits major sins. And he is, mujahid. He, he is someone that does it publicly, in the open. That type of person, jihad is made against him as well, Sheikh Zayd said. How? How is jihad made against him? Bil mawa'id. With mawa'id. Admonishing him. Reminding him. Reminding him with the text from the book of, book of Allah. And the sunnah of the Messenger of Allah, alayhi salam. Those texts that have targheeb and targheeb in them. Those texts that have targheeb, encouragement and targheeb, causing dread in them. So you mention to him matters related to paradise. You mention to him matters related to hellfire. You remind him of the fact that the Prophet said that the one who drinks alcohol, this is going to happen to him. You remind him of the fact that the Prophet said the one who backbites, this is what is going to happen to him. You remind him of the fact that the Prophet said that the one who disobeys his parents, this is what is going to happen to him, and so on and so forth. You give him a mo'idha. You give him those reminders, those reminders that serve as an admonishment for him. And the fifth category, another category that Sheikh Zayd ibn Hadi al-Madkhali, he mentioned, another form of jihad that is made towards other people. You have the jihad and nafs jihad in terms of your own self the jihad towards other people is the jihad to the believers those that uh, are practicing people if you like practicing people how by reminding them how by those reminders yani sheikh said he said for that reason salat al-jum'ah has been legislated because Salat al-Jum'ah is a place where the righteous come and other than the righteous come. Everybody comes to Salat al-Jum'ah. And therefore, that is one of the wisdoms behind Salat al-Jum'ah, that it serves as a reminder because every single person, myself, yourself, everyone, everybody is in need of a reminder. Everybody is in need of a reminder. Sometimes we go off track. So we need a reminder. And thus we have the Friday sermons legislated in our religion so it serves as a reminder for everybody whether it's those that are listening or the one that is giving the sermon every single person it serves as a reminder for him for her because the, the believer the righteous believer he is also prone to going off to going off track iman yazid wa yankus iman it goes up and down because it goes up and down we have salat al-jum'ah the as a result of which the reminders are, are delivered. So that is another jihad. Jihad that is made for and towards those people that are practicing. Jihad, you have jihad against the disbelievers. Jihad against the munafiqeen. Jihad against Ahlul Bid'ah. Jihad against those people who commit major sins. And likewise, jihad towards those people that are yani, uh, practicing people, if you like. So that is something that is important to mention. That is something that is important to mention concerning jihad. That it is not just jihad on the battlefield, but it's a broad term. For a person to engage in the legislated form of jihad on the battlefield, not the jihad of ISIS or Al-Qaeda or Al-Muhajirun or Umar Bakri or Abu Hamza or 
or any of the, any of those or any of those people but the jihad that was legislated by the prophet والسلام, that jihad that has adl it has fairness it has justice justice it has mercy that jihad that can only occur under the authority of a muslim leader you can't just become a vigilante and go and start uh, engaging in warfare it has to be in, a, in an army that type of jihad the prophet mentioned is the mount of islam or the peak of the mount of islam why because as a result of the true jihad the religion of islam retains its honor it has its honor it becomes manifest it becomes established that is the end of part number five and inshallah ta'ala next week we'll continue with part number six part number seven and then hopefully we'll go on to the next hadith we'll conclude at that point and allah knows best